All right. Uh, before I dive in, I need to give a quick update on our speaking team. Uh, as many of you know, Ryan Leak went to college here in Minnesota, but he lives in Dallas, and he also does a lot of speaking outside of Eagle Brook. And over the last few years, the demand for speaking outside of Eagle Brook has increased. And so Ryan has said that he needs to take a step back uh, from speaking here as often this next year. So you're still going to see Ryan from time to time. He's actually up in a few weeks, in fact, but you just won't see him as much. Uh, to fill that gap, we asked Ted Cunningham, who you saw speak last week, if Ted would be willing to speak more often. And Ted was pumped about that. And here's what I know about our church. Eagle Brook loves Ted Cunningham. Uh, I ran into it. Yeah, go ahead. He's not here, but we'll send him the video uh, of you clapping. Uh, <laughs> But he, I asked a person one time who was a member at our church, I said, what could we do to get better? He said, more Ted Cunningham. I was like, okay, well, we can, we can potentially do that. Now, we usually bring Ted in to speak on marriage. Uh, that's a topic he's written a lot about. But Ted is a pastor. He's a Bible teacher. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him more this year. All right, today we are in the third week of a series called Take Back Your Family. And today's message is titled Generational Sin. What is generational sin? Well, let me try to define this for you. Do you know somebody whose parents struggled with alcoholism, their grandparents struggled with alcoholism, and now they're going, should I drink? Or maybe you know somebody whose family, it seems like anger is kind of baked into the DNA. The dad's really angry. The daughter has a temper. Just feels like it's kind of part of their family DNA. I was talking to someone in our church one time, and they said, my grandparents were divorced. My parents got divorced. And this person had just gotten married, and they said, I really want to go the distance in my marriage. We see this pattern in the Bible as well. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Kings, it talks about each king one of two ways. And let me just show you an example of this. In 2 Kings 20, it's talking about a king named Amon. It says, Amon was 22 when he became king. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight just as his father Manasseh had done. So here's this king, Amon, and maybe he realized it, maybe he wasn't even aware. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did that because that's what he saw modeled from his father Manasseh. His father Manasseh was an evil king, he was a wicked king, he didn't want anything to do with God, and his son just sort of followed in those footsteps. Contrast that to another king named Hezekiah says that Hezekiah did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Now, what's interesting about this is David is not Hezekiah's father. Hezekiah's father is King Ahaz, who might have been the most wicked and evil king that Israel had ever known. But Hezekiah did not follow in the ways of his father. He looked at his father and he said, you know what, there's some patterns there, there's some behavior there that I don't want to follow. And so he broke that pattern and followed in the ways of King David instead. Two different kings, one of them followed the ways of their father, the other one did not. One of them broke patterns of generational sin, the other one passed them along. Here's the question I want to ask you today. Can you identify a pattern of generational sin in your family? Is there something in your family that you look at and you go, you know, my parents struggle with this and I find myself struggling with it now? Or is there something in your family that you go, you know, I, I feel like my grandparents have dealt with this, my parents dealt with this, and now I want to go a different direction. 
What is that for you? And my question is, are you going to break that pattern of generational sin, or are you going to pass it along? My wife grew up in a family where her great-grandfather was an alcoholic, her grandfather was an alcoholic, and then her father became an alcoholic. And my wife can remember being in sixth grade, sitting in church, listening to the pastor talk about how Jesus can cleanse your family bloodline. That was the phrase that he used. He can cleanse your family bloodline, which means that there's hope to break patterns of generational sin in your family. And so my wife can remember being in sixth grade, going to the park after church, sitting in the park and praying to God. God, would you help me break this pattern of generational sin in my family? And that's a prayer that God has answered. My wife has never struggled with alcoholism. Even better, her grandfather got sober, her dad got sober, and both of them are being used by God in powerful ways. I want to dive a little deeper into what the Bible says about generational sin, because as I was studying it this week, there was really two truths that struck me. The first truth was this. You are not responsible for your parents' sin. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. You might be wondering, am I going to get punished for something that my parents did? Is there going to be some sort of like punishment from God that travels from one generation down to the next? And I think the answer to that question is no. You might experience some consequences of your parents' decisions. You might experience some ripple effects from choices that they made, but you are not responsible for your parents' sin. Here was the second truth that stuck out to me. The blessing of loving God far outweighs and outlasts the consequences of generational sin. What do I mean by that? Exodus 34 says this, the Lord passed before him. It's talking about Moses. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, forgiving sins, forgiving sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And then he goes on and says, visiting the sins of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice that he talks first about the character of God. Who is God? God is merciful. God is faithful. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. You need to know that about who God is. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't punish sin. In fact, he says he punishes the iniquity or the sin of the father to the third and the fourth generation. What does that mean? It means there's ripple effects to our sinful decisions. There's a ripple effect that could be experienced by our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids to the third and the fourth generation. It can have an effect on our family. And that is a sobering thought. But I want to take you to Exodus 20, because here's what it says. It says, I, the Lord your God, is, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father on their children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me. So he's talking about people who are opposed to God, and he's saying, hey, to the third and the fourth generation, there's going to be some consequences, what we just read. 
But then he goes on and adds this, but showing loving devotion to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying there's going to be some consequences and ripple effects of your sin to the third and the fourth generation, but your love of God, your obedience to his commandments, the ripple effect from that, it's not just going to be felt by your great-grandchildren. It could be felt for a thousand generations in your family. That thought blew my mind that there is a ripple effect to our love of God that far outweighs and outlasts the consequences of our sin. Which is why today I want to show you three gifts that you can give to your family. And it doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're married with kids, married without kids. These are three gifts that if you give these to your family, I believe your family is going to be blessed. Here's the first gift. It's the gift of self-control. Several years ago, um, when my oldest son, Micah, was maybe about eight years old, we had some friends that gave us Timberwolves tickets. And the Timberwolves were playing the Los Angeles Clippers that night. And the Los Angeles Clippers had a player named Spencer Haas. And Spencer Haas was not having a good night. He was like three for 15, which means he made three shots, but he had taken 15. In fact, at one point, he missed like three shots in a row within a span of about a minute. Now, we were sitting close enough to where if I were to yell something out to the players, there was a potential that they could hear me. And I don't know what came over me. I just got caught up in the emotion of the moment. And so I yelled out mockingly, Spencer, keep shooting, as if like, hey, you're going to lose the game for your team. You're going to win for the Timberwolves. The minute I said this, my son, who was about eight, looked at me. He goes, Dad. He's a human being too, you know. <laughs> he goes, he has feelings too. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I, yeah, you're right. I just forgot about that for a moment. But I started thinking in, in the future, do I want my son talking to classmates that way? No, I, I don't. Do I want him talking to opponents that he's playing against in a sport that way? No, I don't. To make matters worse, the Timberwolves lost that night to the Clippers, and Micah jokingly told me on the way home that God had punished me <laughs> for making fun and being mean to Spencer Haas. But here's my point. It's hard to discipline your kids and hold them accountable for lying when you lie. It is hard to hold your kids accountable and discipline them for losing their temper when words just come flying out of our mouth. It is hard to discipline your kids and to hold them accountable for fighting with their siblings when we have all kinds of relational conflict in our life. My point is we have to model the behavior that we want to see. Now, does that mean that parents are perfect and they're never going to sin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, one of the ways that kids need to see modeled to them the most is when their parents come to them and go, I blew it. That, that was wrong of me. I need to confess that to you. And they see the humility of their parents to come before them and to say, I made a mistake. But I'm telling you, what a gift. What a gift to live in a family with people who are striving to have self-control. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control 
is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control is your protection. If you don't have self-control, then you and your family are vulnerable. During the NFL season, I would go on social media on Monday mornings, and I would every Monday, I would see a video of fans fighting at the stadium. I must have clicked on one of these, and the algorithm got me or something, but every Monday, it was like, here's Philadelphia Eagles fans just beating on a Cowboys fan in the concourse, and security's trying to pull them apart. And then the next week, it was the Lions and the Bears. And there was a New England Patriot fan this year who died after being knocked unconscious by a Dolphins fan. And I'm watching these videos, and I'm thinking to myself, for some people, NFL stadiums have become a city without walls. There's no self-control. There's no self-control for how much you drink. There's no self-control when it comes to your temper. It is a city without walls. That's why the author of Proverbs goes on to say he will die for lack of self-control. I know people who are smart and talented who have had relationships and careers die. It's not because they lacked intelligence. It's not because they weren't talented. It's because they lacked one thing. It was self-control. We have viewing groups that meet in prisons throughout the state of Minnesota. And if you're at one of those viewing groups right now, I just want you to know, we are so honored to have you a part of our church. But as I've talked to people who are incarcerated, who have been incarcerated, they will tell me, this is it. They're like, I didn't plan this. What got me incarcerated, I never planned it. I never wanted it. I didn't even think through it. I just got caught up in the emotion of the moment. And I was lacking in self-control. And if you think about the sins, the generational sins in your family that are destructive, don't they all at their root come back to something like self-control? Where is it in your life that you need to say, you know what, I need more self-control? In 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, If you're experiencing fear, that's not from God. That God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I'll talk to people sometimes and they're like, I'm trying. Like, I'm trying. I don't want to give into that addiction. I don't want to give into that behavior. I'm trying so hard, but I just can't seem to say no. And then they'll say, I don't want to do it. And I promised my family I would never do it again. But I just, I keep going back to it. And I will take them to the first four words in this verse. For God gave us. For God gave us. Self-control does not come from willpower. It doesn't come from trying really hard in your own strength. It doesn't come from gritting your teeth and going, I promise I won't do it again. Here's how we receive self-control. We receive it from God. We receive it when we rely on his power and his strength. Where do you need to ask God? God, would you fill me with a spirit of self-control? Romans 8, 37 says this, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. You have victory. 
You have the victory over that behavior. Jesus Christ won that victory. Now we need to walk in it. We need to rely on his power and his strength so that we can have that victory in our life. Self-control, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family. Here's the second gift that you can give to your family, and it says, it's a strong marriage. I was playing princess and prince with my five-year-old daughter, Anna, and she was the princess and I was the prince, which is how it should be for all of time, if you ask me. But we were playing, and she set up a little bed. She kind of laid down a blanket and a pillow, and I was, as the prince, about to lay down on the bed, and she stopped me, like dead in my tracks, and she's like, no, prince sleeps on the couch, princess sleeps in the bed. And I did what she told me to do, but I thought, where, where did she get that from? Like, I've never slept on the couch. She's never seen me sleeping on the couch. But it strikes me that one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family is a strong marriage. The irony of that is that kids make marriage more difficult it is easier to have a good marriage when you come home after a long day at work, you grab some takeout, you sit on the floor, you just sit and talk to each other. It's a lot harder when you get home after a long day of work and you've got a baby crying and the counter's messy and you're already late for practice. But your marriage is worth it. It's one of the reasons why I've advocated for years that couples would have a time every week to get away just the two of them. And I'm not talking about like, you know, going out with friends to dinner. You can do that a different night. I'm saying just the two of you to get away for just a few hours, go to dinner, go on a walk. Doesn't have to be expensive. You can just go on a walk. Doesn't even have to be going out. You might say, well, we can't get a babysitter. Okay, well, just put a movie on or something. Go grab a plate of food, go in the other room. But your marriage needs this. You need to laugh together. You need to enjoy each other. You need to get away from the stress of life with one another. You need to have some time to resolve conflict. There are, there are date nights when my wife and I are pulling out of our neighborhood, and I will turn to her and I'll go, let's just have it out. I mean, let's just, let's just get it out of the way before we get to dinner. Because you can feel this frustration and the annoyance have just been building up, and we need some time to resolve some conflict. Do you have a time like that? Do you have a time built into your weekly schedule, just the two of you, to be away with one another? What about your yearly schedule? I mean, I just read a, a study that found that couples who came home from vacation, 42% of them said it felt like we just sparked our love again. And all it took was a vacation. Maybe for you, it's not a weekly time. Maybe it's not a vacation or anything like that. Maybe for you, you say, you know what? We're going to go to a marriage conference. We're going to go see a marriage counselor to talk through some of the issues we have in our marriage. My wife and I have been reading a devotion by Ted Cunningham. It's a marriage devotion, 52 weeks. Each chapter is like three pages. Guys, you can do this. Okay, you can do this. And there's questions at the end that will help you dig a little more intimately into your relationship. But what is it that you want to do this year to invest in your marriage? One of the things that I wanted to do to invest in my marriage this year was I wanted to commit to showing my wife more affection. And it's going to sound kind of funny, but I, when I get home from work, I don't even think about giving her a hug. 
I'm just like a personality where I'm like, okay, what am I doing now? I'm going to move over this, do this. this. It, just, it just doesn't cross my mind. But it is important to my wife. And so for the last few months, I've been trying to do a better effort of showing affection. A few months ago, I got home. I gave my wife a hug. And my daughter, Anna, who's five, she was playing with some toys. She looked up and she goes, hold on. And she came running over as fast as she could. She grabbed onto one of my legs and one of my wife's legs. And she just pulled and laughed. And then she wiggled her way into the middle for an, what she called an Anna sandwich. And she went and got our dog, Augie. And he was licking and going crazy. And then my youngest son, Jasper, thought this looked funny. And so he came over and kind of grabbed on. And I stood there holding my wife. And my kids were holding on to my legs. And I remember having this thought. Have I been missing these moments? I was actually teared up when I was typing those words on the computer. I thought, God, have I been, have I been missing these moments? Because I don't want to miss them. Your marriage matters. Your kids notice. Your grandkids notice. And it can be a blessing, not just to them, but to a thousand generations. A strong marriage is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family. Here's the third gift that you can give to your family. And it's the gift of prayer. Years ago, we were at our small group and one of the couples was saying that when they pray together as a family at dinner, they said they all hold hands. And I thought, oh, that sounds really cool. We tried it. My daughter refused to hold anybody's hand. One of my sons, in a snarky tone, said, she's out of the family. <laughs> my daughter got upset. I got upset. One of my other sons just started eating his food. He's like, whatever. You got him. I'm going to wait for you guys. It was a total disaster. And maybe you've tried to pray as a family, or you've tried to pray for your spouse or your kids. You just keep forgetting, and, and you think, oh, I'm just going to give up on this. Don't give up. Prayer is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your kids, to your grandkids. One of the greatest gifts you can give to your parents. To be praying for them regularly. My wife prays for our kids, sadly, way more than I do. And I have told her, sometimes I feel like our family has been blessed in some way because of her and her prayers. I was in college, and I remember this classmate of mine, she was talking about her most vivid memories from high school. She said, my most vivid memory is I would come downstairs for school in the morning, and I would see my mom praying. Her mom would be kneeled down in the living room, Bible open in front of her, praying for each of her kids by name. She said, it's my most vivid memory of my mother. Hudson Taylor, a first missionary to China, was not always a godly person. In his teenage years, he was rebellious against God. He was against God. He constantly was like, I don't want to have anything to do with my parents' faith. I mean, his parents might drag him to church or something, but he was like, I'm not following that. Until one day, his mother on a Saturday morning went into her bedroom. She said, I am going to pray for this boy until he comes to faith in Christ. She prayed all morning. She prayed into the afternoon, and she felt the Holy Spirit of God come over her and release her. And her son, Hudson Taylor, came home that night, and he said, Mom, you would not believe. But this afternoon, I became a follower of Christ. 
He went on to become one of the most famous followers of Christ who has ever lived, one of the first missionaries to China. In our own church, I was talking to a mom, and a single mom this past summer who had listened to a message that I had given about Satan and spiritual warfare, and at the time, her teenage daughter was not doing well. Her teenage daughter was hanging out with an older group of friends. They were kind of pulling her away from God, and this mom was distraught. And so she said, I went and I prayed through every room in my house. She took oil, which is a symbol in the Bible of God's presence, and she anointed it over the doorpost of each room. And she walked into that room, and she prayed this prayer, Satan, you cannot have her. A few months later, this older group of friends that her daughter thought was so cool ditched her. And she was desperate for hanging out with people, and she met a new group of friends who happened to be followers of Christ, and she began to walk with God, and her life is being transformed. Are you praying for your kids? Are you praying for your grandkids? Are you praying for your parents? Sometimes we don't even think to pray for our parents, but are you praying for God to work in their life? I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family. Years ago, my wife went to her cousin's wedding, and at the reception, they had a dance where the couple who had been married the longest would be the last ones on the dance floor. And so as they kind of went along, you know, they'd say, okay, if you've been married for 20 years or less, leave the, the, the floor. If you've been married for 30 years or less, you know, you have to leave the dance floor. And finally, there was one couple. It was my wife's grandparents. And at the time, they had been married for 62 years. I want to show you a picture of them on the dance floor. This is my wife's grandmother in a wheelchair. And that's her husband at the time of 62 years. And I have watched that man love her with a gentleness and a kindness and a love. And I have watched them pray for their kids and for their grandkids. And in that moment, as they were dancing, surrounding them was all of their kids and their grandkids watching them dance with each other after 62 years of marriage. When I saw that picture, I thought, that's what I want. I don't want to miss out on a moment like that. I don't want to have a, a moment of where I lack self-control that causes something in my life to miss out on what I could have, what would be important to God. I don't want to, I don't want to miss that. And I want a strong marriage for my kids to see that. I'm telling you, even if you've had a marriage end, you can talk to your kids about relationships and the value of them and, and, and the value of marriage. You, you can still do this. And I want to pray for my kids. I want to pray for my grandkids. And I want to leave a legacy of loving God and obeying his commands. 
And I believe that my family, if that were to happen, and your family, if that were to happen, would be blessed. Not just to the third generation, not just to the fourth generation, but to a thousand generations. There is hope. There is hope to break a pattern of generational sin in your family. Let's pray to God. Lord, I pray right now that you would fill us with self-control. And God, if there are some of us who have done something in a moment where we lack self-control, which we probably all have, God, I pray for hope. I pray for restoration. Lord, we want to get back on track today and walk with you. Lord, if there's a couple here who's struggling in their marriage, I pray they don't ignore it. I pray they move in. I pray that they focus this year on how they can grow to have a stronger marriage. And Lord, I pray for any family that has a kid, a child who is struggling or who has wandered from God and their parents don't know what to do and they're struggling and they're praying and they're not seeing an answer to prayer. God, I pray that you would hear their prayer, hear their cry, save their son, save their daughter. Pray that they would come back to you, God that they would be an answer to their parents' prayer. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything at all, come on down front at your campus. Otherwise, we'll see you next weekend.